Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I've got a fascinating guest, James Hadley, from Pensions and Property, who is an expert in helping his clients to unlock the value in their property investments through specific wrappers such as pensions. So welcome, James. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Rod. Great to be here. So, James, do you want to give us a bit of background as to how you ended up being a specialist in pensions and property? Yeah, sure. Okay. So I've pretty much done done pensions work for all of my professional life. I worked for three major life offices. One of those was the biggest provider of small self-administered schemes in the country. And then I set up an independent tax practice in 2006. For some reason, we naturally started to gravitate towards a lot of clients and while we, uh, property clients. While we had a very general practice at the time, we did a lot of property work. We did quite a lot of work with small self-administered schemes. But in amongst all this, I, I mean, I got into pensions in 2001 professionally, but I, I started investing in property in 2004. So I was always kind of leaning towards the tax advantages of a pension scheme, but with the asset class of property. As the business grew, we took on more and more property clients. We did more and more pensions work. And we just ended up three, four years ago in this micro niche of just doing pensions and property work because to me, it seemed obvious there was no one else doing it, so we may as well get involved. So we took the decision to close down all other avenues of, of client work that we were doing in 2019 to focus solely on property and pensions. Fantastic. And um, you're mentioning kind of small self-administered schemes there, also known as SAS pensions. What's the biggest difference between a SAS pension and a SIP pension? Well, I guess who's really in control of it? Because while they're both effectively member-directed schemes, i.e. the underlying investor makes the decisions, with, in the case of a SIP, you've got an FCA-regulated trustee. And so there's always this, well, I suppose, a last line of defence, if you like, right. whereby an investment won't go through unless you, unless the SIP trustee is on board. Now, there are times when that can be for someone's own good, i.e. when they come along and say, hey, I want to invest in this uh, gold mine in Mozambique. It might be quite helpful that the trustee puts up that barrier. But then there are other times when the trustee just thinks, do you know what, that's quite a lot of work. It's not really profitable business for us. And we're just going to say we don't want to do it because it doesn't fit in with our business model. And in that case, it's quite a negative outcome. And it's that kind of squeezing of what's technically allowable within a SIP to what's practically possible through a provider that's causing this sort of flight towards small self-administered schemes. Yeah, that's interesting. I think you've hit the nail on the head there with kind of what's technically available and what's the reality or for, for lots of people, because you can go through the theory of things kind of till you blue in the face and think, right, this is going to happen and I can do X, Y and Z. But then when you get down to the coal face of actually trying to invest in certain different types of investments, it can become almost impossible to actually bring that theory to reality because there's blockers in place like you, like some of the ones you mentioned. Yeah, really interesting. So I guess the big question here is how can a portfolio of rental properties be protected from the damaging effects of tax 
with specialist wrappers or vehicles such as pensions? What are some of those, the main kind of focus points of that? Well, I think like with any other form of tax planning, whether that's using pensions or other vehicles, the biggest opportunities for tax planning actually come if you're considering what you want to achieve at the start. If people go along and start, you know, historically, I guess people historically acquired properties in their own name and they got sizable portfolios. And then guess what? Section 24 comes along and um, and causes a, a flight to incorporation. Now, if those landlords had given some thought at the start to the fact that they were growing a sizable business, not just, you know, two, three properties, and they structured their affairs as if it were going to be a business, there might have been a, a whole load of different outcomes. Because, of course, if you're owning an asset with the expectation of return in your own name, there's no barrier between you and that investment return and it occurring. So you get an investment return, tax is payable in terms of, so you buy a property, you rent it out. Once you've knocked, knocked off your cost from the rent, you're going to pay tax on that amount. When you've got a structure in the way, just sticking with limited companies, you've got that. You can choose when you take that income, you know, you can choose when you take that and whether that's beneficial for tax purposes or not. And it's kind of a little bit the same with pension schemes. Yes, of course, most things can be reorganized later to put properties that are personal ownership into companies, properties that are in corporate ownership under a pensions wrapper. But it's always a lot more work. We have, where appropriate, restructured property portfolios to get them under pension wrappers. And that's been for business owners typically. So where you've got a business owner, they may be, I don't know, in their 30s, 40s, 50s, they've got one eye on the future and the fact that they might not, they might not get to the point where they sell the business. The business could fail. They could they could have health problems, all sorts of things that could affect that capital event. They've decided to hedge that by buying and investing into properties, amongst other things. And often they don't need the income, but they're doing it to create an income at some point in the future. They might turn that income on 55, 60, 65. And so to us, it's absolutely crackers that these people have been historically earning money in their company, paying corporation tax on it, paying it out as a dividend. So they've got you know income tax to pay on that dividend. Then they're going along and buying properties. So in those instances where people have... They've created portfolios where they don't need the income now. What a great place to be. We've restructured those under pension wrappers so that the rental income as it's received isn't suffering income tax, it isn't suffering corporation tax. If they were to get knocked over by the number nine bus, there's no inheritance tax issues there. And if they're going to dispose, there's no CGT or corporation tax. So while there are people that do that, the people with the foresight to do it are kind of few and far between. I mean, it's such a minefield, isn't it, when you're looking at these things? Because as someone who's kind of been there um, in terms of becoming neurotic about things like not just corporation tax and income tax and making those efficient, but also looking at family finance planning, inheritance tax planning, all these different things. And then you can start to think about, right, should I be focusing on a pension? Should I be focusing on a family investment vehicle for inheritance tax reasons? Should I be focusing on business property relief? There's so many different kind of avenues to go down. Things change. And so how can you set up something that could potentially be adaptable and be right for you? It's incredibly subjective, I found. What works for one person certainly doesn't mean it's going to work for everyone. Yeah, I agree with that 100%, Rob. And and I think that's the problem is that we've got these kind of concepts, if you like, family investment companies and pensions and all sorts of other mechanisms out there. And people can get 
bogged down and end up with the whole paralysis by analysis thing because they think, oh, I'm thinking a family investment company is the right thing for me. And then someone comes up and says, well, why don't we do an LLP? And then yep. someone says, oh, you don't want to do that because that's all a little bit controversial. Let's use pensions. Let's do this. Or the bloke down the pub told me that. Or my brother-in-law said this. And no, 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 no. There's too much noise. But actually, it's about the outcome. People too much try to focus on the solution without thinking about the outcome first. And so it's almost like they want this magic wand solution. When actually, so you pick two things out that you just said to me, you know, pensions, obviously we're discussing those, and family investment companies. Well, actually, to me, they're both great solutions to a lot of problems. But the key thing that divides them is actually liquidity. Yeah. If you need liquidity now, or you need the income now, or you need to ultimately have some benefit from that cash now, well, a pension's probably not the right thing for you. It might be. It could be structured to be. But the more obvious thing is a family investment company because you either pay dividends or you don't, or you can pay salary or you can run expenses through it. There's all that good stuff. And if you've got a tax problem in the family investment company, you've then got an opportunity for further tax planning. But people actually get hung up on the which kind of product or solution do I need and not actually, well, what's the outcome and then working it back? Yeah, yeah. Going back to kind of, I guess, the, the pension side of things, is it purely tax that it's kind of combating there and, and is the solution for? And obviously there's various, like we've just discussed, various different forms of tax. Or is there anything else that's beneficial? Is it maybe a good idea to run through some of those taxes that it does impact in a either positive or well, mostly positive or any negatives? Okay, yeah, I mean, there are positives and negatives, but I mean, the ones that I guess as a professional, I deem to be obvious, but we'll cover them anyway. The pension scheme itself doesn't pay income tax or corporation tax on the income it receives from its investments. So you get gross roll up. If you dispose of those investment assets, you don't pay capital gains tax either. So again, the funds roll up gross. And because the assets are owned by a pension scheme, they're not actually in your estate for tax purposes. So they're wonderful. But what are the downsides? Well, actually, if you're an ambitious business owner, the lifetime allowance of just over a million quid isn't really that much. If you were to focus solely on pensions, I can't see that. I can't see that keeping someone in a ten thousand pound a month lifestyle if that's what they've got used to. And it can be restrictive sometimes as to how how when you take benefits. A major advantage that I think of for business people that is massively overlooked, in my opinion, is that you've got protection from creditors. So again, running a business, imagine you run a service-based business, let's say. They often don't have a massive capital value. They might have a bit of a brand, but in the SME space, that doesn't really matter. So you kind of, as a business owner, you're hoping to earn quite a lot of money while you're of a working age and then hopefully sell the business when you get to a point that you want to wind down. But that liquidity event might not happen. Whereas if you're accumulating funds through a pension on the way through and getting tax relief, you've actually got something put aside for if you don't hit that liquidity event for whatever reason. But the other thing as well is that those pension contributions, even though they could be sizable, as long as they're not put there to deliberately put the money out of the way of creditors, they're protected from creditors. And so should the whole thing go tits up when you're two years from effectively retirement or selling, you've got this You've got this buffer there, this nice comfort blanket that you've accumulated over the years effectively using the government to fund half of it in tax relief yeah interesting i've no, I've considered that side of things actually so yeah good point one of the things i get concerned about when i hear people who invest in property talk about pensions is that often the majority of their wealth is already tied up in property and i know 
property is very kind of flexible in the way that you invest by location, by property type, by tenancy type. It's not all correlated in terms of, for example, retail might go down, residential might go up, healthcare might go down at the same time, the logistics might go up. Just some examples there. But I do get concerned when people are exposing basically all of their wealth to the same risks, which I think is quite commonplace. And I know people feel that they've got maybe an edge over the market because they've got a specific skill set within property that they act. But I guess my question is kind of, are you, do you feel the same concerns there when people talk about, I I want to set up a SAS pension purely so I can do loan backs to my development company or something like that? So I guess the two-part question, what are your thoughts on that? And then second part to it would be, is that where something like a GDCV comes in? And can you explain a bit more about a GDCV and what it is and, and when you might want to consider it? Okay, yeah. I mean, I massively share your concerns. And I know that sounds really weird for someone whose whole business is property and pensions. But I do, because the thing is, you've got massive liquidity risk and massive concentration risk with property. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you own 20 properties and you do it through your pension, that's still reasonably concentrated. And often those will be geographically concentrated. They'll be across certain markets. So I don't know, someone might invest in uh, HMOs in Hull and that's their thing. And they know it inside out and that's great. But to have all your eggs in that basket is a dangerous thing. So, I mean, make no secret of the fact I have my own uh, SaaS. I'm sat in a building that's owned by the SaaS. The SaaS is only 50% in property. Because all I'm saying is my specialism is pensions in property. I'm not saying that people should blindly go down this one-eyed route of everything is linked to property because it's difficult you know if, if someone suddenly said you know i need to write a check for a quarter of a million quid and the pension fund's all i've got i've either got to get a lender that's going to raise some bridging on it pretty fast or whack it in an auction and not probably get fair value so yeah i'm totally with you there are people and i think it's to a degree down to the property education companies, people end up like one-eyed, they get spellbound by leverage, effectively, and uh, and they just think, it's almost like someone's invented fire, and they think, do you know what, I'm going to max out my credit cards, borrow a penny I can get, and it's all going into property. And there are some people that, that will work for, absolutely. Some by look, some because they're clever, um, some because of rising markets, but I think those people might have a tougher time this year. That's just personally my, my view. Yeah. Um, but in terms of people going into SASs to lend money either to third parties or to themselves. Again, we're kind of back to the thing we discussed on the last little topic, that people really get hung up kind of on the product rather than what they're trying to achieve. So what we've seen over the last few years is, uh, again, driven by training organisations, there's a raft of people that have said, I need to take control of my pension. I need to put it in a SAS. So they leave their defined benefit scheme. It's got three, 400,000 in it after 20 years. They go and put it in a SAS. And first and foremost, it sits there in cash, not beating inflation, with quite high charges comparably to running the pension scheme. So that's the first issue that comes along. And then they go along and rather than where it was, probably diversified asset management strategy, they'll think, oh, well, I can borrow 50% of it and I'm going to stick that in my limited company and I'm going to go and buy something. They'll go and buy something. But the fact that they've got it in a bank account that they control Again, they've never seen this before. It's like magic. I think it's more like witchcraft. But then there's the other half that they're kind of like, 
well, what do I do with this? And they end up whacking it on a spurious crowdfunding platform or to loan notes or this, that, the other. And they're actually no better off than they were before. You know, they're lending it out at 8% per annum. They're paying one to two grand a year to have the pension scheme run for them. They're very concentrated in asset class and in specific assets that sit underneath that. And I don't get it just because they're now supposedly free. It's just crackers, absolutely crackers. I guess a lot of your job must be saving people from themselves. Because we all know, I guess, use cliches, what we don't know, what you don't know kind of stuff. And it's if you're very focused in on one market, um, you're just so exposed to outside risk and to things that can come along. For example, let's say you were all into bonds and then the bond markets dropped suddenly. Um, What do you do there? It's yeah, it must be must be quite quite you must have to have some quite difficult conversations. Okay. Well, yes and no. I mean, look, I'm renowned for being a very straight talker. I don't really sugarcoat things. That doesn't necessarily have to be adversarial or confrontational. It's just the way it is. So for example, I wrote an article ages ago which was it was effectively a, a comparison of the cost of running a SaaS across 25 providers. And I use that actually to say, if someone comes along to me and say, right, I've been on this training course and I've got 30 grand and I need to do a SaaS and I can lend 15 grand to my company and I might just about be able to put that on a deposit in the Northeast somewhere, you know, yeah. you have to sort of point it out to them that sometimes the, the fees that they will incur to get there can be 10 to 15% of their fund value. And then they're going to be paying sometimes 10% of their fund value in annual charges to get there to keep that thing going. And so just because they can doesn't mean that they should. I guess that's like any direct investment in property. It's understanding the operational costs as a percentage of the income. It's like you say, if you've got, I don't know, you've got to change your fire door and your house in Mayfair or your house in kind of Northumbria, it might be 0.5% of your income in Mayfair and it might be 100% of your income in Northumbria, for example. So on that basis, is there a value of a pension where you think is the lower, is the kind of floor limit of you really need at least X amount in that pension before looking down that SAS route? So the other thing I didn't say is that we do consider all of our clients to be adults and they make their own decisions. And so, I mean, some people would wince if I said, well, we've set up a SAS of £15,000 before, but it was a married couple and one of them had a £15,000 transfer to put in. The other one was going through was going through some of the restructuring in their business affairs. They didn't want to do anything at the time. They got 300000 to transfer in at a later date. And so... There's always the exception to the rule, you know, 15,000 wouldn't have made any financial sense, but the fact that they might be making contributions out of the business or from other pension transfers later, that might work. But I always broad brush, you're looking at about a six-figure pension fund mm-hmm. in reality, because it's going to cost twelve to 1,500 quid to set the SAS up, plus that. You can VAT register a SAS. I'd strongly suggest you don't if, if you don't have to, because I've done it and it's a nightmare. <laughs> but if it's non-recoverable VAT, so suddenly, if you're getting towards 2% just on the pension wrapper to set it up and 2% per annum to run it, that stings a little bit. And then you end up being encouraged to take unnecessary risks to try and beat the charges, beat inflation and get a real return. Again, it's kind of different for business owners because if business owners have got 40, 50,000, but they've got the capacity to fund at 40, 80, 120,000 a year, it's less of an issue. But if you have a mind that you've got 40,000 pounds in a pension, you're never going to contribute again. I think you should probably just leave it there as a, and accept that it's going to perform some other function. Okay. And then going back to what we kind of talked about, about being overly exposed 
in specific markets and sort of GDCVs. Do you want to explain a little bit about what they are and, and when you might want to consider them? Yeah, absolutely. So a GDCV, a genuinely diverse commercial vehicle, it's a HMRC term that they put in the pensions tax manual. And a GDCV is just their description of a holding vehicle that can hold residential property under a pension and not attract unauthorized payment charges, i.e. 55% of the amount invested. So there are clear exemptions, Schedule 29A of the Finance Act 2004, where a pension scheme invests into residential property via a GDCV. There are exemptions there. I think where they can help people, it's kind of in that diversification bracket. So let's just keep the numbers really simple. Let's say someone's got a half million pound pension fund. That's big enough to make the whole thing worthwhile. But they've got an eye on diversification and liquidity. They could take 250,000 of that and put that into a GDCV. They could leave the other 250,000 in Vanguard portfolios or with a DFM or an IFA to manage in a conventional way. But the thing about a GDCV is it doesn't have the same borrowing restrictions that a SIP or a SAS does directly. So that... 250,000 that's left could quite easily be leveraged up to a million quid. So million quid, depending on where you are in the country, you know, you mentioned fire doors in Mayfair, Mayfair a few minutes ago. I don't think million quid would get you anything in Mayfair, or at least nothing that would perhaps hit the market. But if you've got a million quid to spend in other parts of the country, you could get a number of units, a number of different units in a number of different parts of the country. So you could get yourself a portfolio that's got some diversification, throwing off some real meaningful income while also keeping liquidity and diversification in the markets so while you might think that we'd be anti that as an idea it really sort of helps keep people safe by having a a gdcv and something else because the whole balanced portfolio thing and i guess any ifas that listen in would probably agree that diversification is a good thing and just in terms of that then so just so i've got it right so the pension owns the GDCV and then the GDCV owns directly the properties and then essentially whoever owns the pension has the rights to the income. Yeah, absolutely. So the a common structure of GDCV is a unit trust. So if you imagine the structure top to bottom, you've got the SIP or the SAS. That buys units in the unit trust. So in this case, 250,000 units of £1 each. Once that transaction's done, you've got a SAS with units in it and you've got a GDCV with money in it and then you buy the properties and you borrow at the unit trust level yeah for the mortgages and in terms of kind of that gdcv set up and ongoing costs are there then additional charges for, for those as well on top of the sip or sas yeah there are and it's not unfortunately the, the entry costs of that you know aren't conducive to small pension funds it probably doesn't make sense to do any sort of gdcv structure for less than two hundred thousand as an absolute minimum and, and even at that level it wouldn't work without leverage the, yeah. the investment returns would be um, eaten into by the running costs but people with leverage and getting into sort of two hundred thousand pound plus they can start to make a real return okay that's really interesting there and then what would happen on winding up or disposing of the assets within the GDCV? It just goes back in and can that GDCV invest into other assets as well, I guess? It- yeah, I mean, we've it's not our thing, but we've had someone come to us recently and say, look, can you set us up a can you set us up a holding structure for crypto? Because we don't want to hold it directly on the platform and our 
SaaS trustees are particularly comfortable with it. So can you set us up a unit trust structure in which to hold crypto? So yeah, they don't have to be just for property. It's just they're commonly used for that. And I guess if you've got kind of commercial property or sort of non-residential property almost is probably a better way of phrasing it, that makes sense to be held in a SIP or a SAS, whereas it would just be if you're looking at residential specifically, then it could be a GDCV. Not entirely. I guess, yeah, definitely there has to be. Where there's a residential element, there has to be a GDCV, otherwise there's a, there's a problem. I mean, there are some narrow exemptions on care homes and things like that, but you'd need a GDCV. But there are areas where people are holding commercial properties and using a GDCV just for the additional leverage. Right, got you. Okay, yeah, makes sense. So, I mean, in theory, you could purchase, I don't know, a commercial piece of land through your SIP or SAS start to develop that out and then transfer it into a GDCV, the residential element, once it's developed. Yeah, well, you can do it at outset. I mean, one of the things that a GDCV can do, I mean, essentially a GDCV, as we see it, can do three things that a SIP or a SAS can't do in its own right. That's buy and hold residential property. It can borrow at more than 50% of its net asset value. And the third thing is that it can trade. Now, Pension funds, because of their tax exemptions, they're not allowed to trade in a business sense. And that does make perfect sense because if you were if you were to allow people to trade through pensions and not pay any income tax, there would be no companies in existence in, in, in the UK, would there? And so specifically a unit trust structure has the ability of doing is it has the ability of turning trading income, which might come from flipping properties or developing properties and selling them on quickly. It turns it from trading income into investment income in the hands of the pension trustees which is massively valuable, yeah, as a conversion. And I guess then it still follows the same path in terms of no income tax on the income it generates. And again, if you're trading and you sell one of the properties, there wouldn't be any capital gains tax again because it's held within a SIP or a SAS pension above that GDCV. Yeah, absolutely. And then just going back to your very good comment of theory versus reality, In reality, what are the hurdles here? Because at the moment, it sounds fantastic, apart from obviously, it obviously being much riskier, because you might be using more leverage, and you might be exposed to kind of the similar markets as where your wealth is. Are there any things like, do you have to get it signed off with your administrator, for example, and things like that before buying an individual property through a GDCV or a portfolio? Yeah, it's not as straightforward as some people would think. I mean, there's been a massive shift in the market in pensions that people, especially when it comes to SASs, people just think that they can be educated into these outcomes. And they also delude themselves and think that their pension scheme administrator is actually now their advisor. And that's not the case. So people think, okay, oh, wow, it's really cheap and easy to go and set up a SAS. I can just go along to ABC provider and I'll just set one up. Well, how do you know the difference between one and another? You can look at five different trust deeds and rules for different providers and you've got five different outcomes. Some of them you're on the hook for their cock-ups and some of them they're not. And people don't know that. They just think, okay, well, I'm going to go with that one because someone tagged that one in a Facebook post 20 times, so we must be great. Well, just because they've let you do what you want to do doesn't necessarily mean it's the, the right thing to do. So the barrier, I guess, is that you need advice. Putting one of these together is beyond the scope of your SaaS provider. 
Yeah. They just don't do it. It would be a conflict of interest for a SaaS provider to be both. So yeah, the barriers to entry, I guess, are advice because also that advice is going to have to, it's going to have to encompass advice to your SaaS provider as well. Because they yes, either want moving they, parts, isn't it? It's getting them all together and having that holistic view. And I guess like yeah. with any investment vehicle, you've got to be, well, especially when we're talking about kind of SME property investment companies, you need to kind of, although you might have a tax advisor, you might have kind of, SAS trustees on board you might have various different kind of people that doing their part you need to have that holistic view of everything to understand the bigger picture which is is very very difficult for some people because really you've got to have a basic understanding of all these different kind of avenues which can be incredibly hard and also means you've got to put your trust in people to understand their part and understand that how I don't know, something that is specifically tax advantageous might not be a good idea because it might expose you to massive risk somewhere else. It's about understanding all these things or a bit about all these things, really, to then get the right people in, which is, as I say, easier said than done. Hello, everyone. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to talk to you quickly about a sponsor of ours called Signature Property Finance. They are a bridging loan provider based in Solihull, Birmingham. The company also has regional offices in Cardiff and Edinburgh, which enable them to serve clients across the whole of England, Wales and Scotland. They were established in 2012 and Signature have two primary funding lines, private equity and a traditional debt facility via a high street bank. So what is it they fund and how can they help you? Well, Signature will lend against both residential and commercial property on a standard bridge with a maximum loan to value of 70% and 60% respectively for a term of between 6 and 18 months. They offer both a light and heavy refurbishment product, again for a term of up to 18 months. Light refurbishment amounts to anything non-structural in nature, whereas anything involving structural changes requires a heavy refurbishment product. They will lend up to 75% of the lower of the purchase price or day one open market value. Signature also lend development finance up to a maximum loan of 5 million and for up to 15 units. The loan terms are up to 24 months and cover residential or mixed use developments and they will lend up to the lower of 65% of the GDV or 80% of total costs. So why would you use them? Well, in in the words of CEO Tony Gilbertson, Signature do what they say they're going to do, provided the information given by the customer and or the broker on day one is accurate, the terms issued on day one will be the same terms that the customer draws down on. So if you've got any property finance requirements, please contact Tony Gilbertson at Tony, T-O-N-Y, at signaturepropertyfinance.co.uk. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And for a limited time only, they are doing a special offer for all Rodcast listeners. If you look to get finance with them and mention the Rodcast, you will get free legals for a limited time only. Yes, that's right. That's free legals for a limited time only. Just mention the Rodcast. They really are a fantastic company that do what they say they're going to do and act quickly. Back to the show. Yeah, and I've got a massive amount of sympathy for the the professional SaaS trustees themselves because 
To be a trustee, you've got to have a very broad range of knowledge and experience, find themselves dealing with all sorts of issues around trusts, tax, commercial stuff, disputes. You know, you get four people in a SaaS together who are business partners and get on today. They make a load of joint investments and they all fall out tomorrow or you throw in a divorce there for good measure or a death at the wrong time. And so the SaaS providers, they've got their fee models. And in reality, when you look at on a director level, they're quite lean. If you've got a SaaS that's charging 1200 quid a year to run it, that doesn't really allow for a lot of director time once you've done all of the basic you know, returns and compliance. And, and so when a member trustee approaches them wanting to do something or needing to do something, I guess they don't always get a favourable answer because quite often it will be, can I do this? And the SAS trustee probably knows in the heart, yeah, they can, but it's a lot of work to do it. And if I suddenly say, okay, well, now we're in the taxi and we're turning on the meter and you're going to pay me by the hour for the amount of work, the client's not going to like the five grand bill they get once they've done all of the round robin with the lawyers and all of the other moving parts involved so actually they'll say no you can't or no we won't and then the punter is left in the scenario that they either sort of put up with that or they vote with their feet and move which does seem a little bit severe sometimes just because someone won't execute an investment transaction so there's all manner of bits and pieces i mean one of the things that we've been doing an increasing amount of work the last year on is what i'd call trustee assurance and it's where we're giving one-off pieces of advice writing reports on specific transactions because we're effectively moving the risk from the professional indemnity insurer of the SaaS provider onto our own right okay and given a purely independent view on the transaction that's not that we're a gun for hire and we're saying okay well you pay us this and we'll tell you you can do it far from it you know we get balls deep in those tax textbooks there and and thrash out the issues but there's an increasing level of demand for that because of trustees just kind of saying no yeah i get that um as an example let's say you because you mentioned you might have four people in a SaaS and they get on now and they don't later especially with things like property if you're trying to dispose of properties there and you've got i don't know let's say two people in a SaaS, one person might have 60 percent of the SaaS, the other person might have 40 percent if the person with 60 wants to do something, is that it? No. We, I mean, one of the all of the trustees have got to sign off the investment decisions. Yeah. And the assets themselves are allocated to specific members. So you've got a pool and you've got members with the rights and it's all sort of crossing over each other. So we've had an example, real life scenario, small pub company, five or six sites, four partners in there. Uh, two of those are married, two, two were unrelated. You've got their, their money in. They did some shocking piece of planning with intellectual property. They've ended up with one minor member who's got five grand in there and he's fallen out with all of them. He just won't sign anything just because five grand is nothing. You know, he knows it. He's he's going to die before retirement. He knows that because he's seriously ill and he just thinks, well, screw you. I'm not playing ball. I'm just doing what I want. And you know, it leaves them in an awkward scenario. Now that situation has been going on for four years. It was refreshing to speak to a provider just a couple of weeks ago and without any discussion of that case at all, they said one of the things that they're working out at the moment is putting the right dispute resolution mechanisms into their rules. Um, and I was like, that's brilliant. That's so, well, it's not even forward thinking. I mean, SAS is a 50 years old this year. But it's the first time I've specifically heard a provider talk about putting dispute resolution provisions into their rules. 
And I just thought, great, because in real life, that's what does happen. Well, exactly. It's like having out. a shareholders agreement, isn't it, in your business? It's people fall out. And not necessarily fall out, but people's aspirations and wants and yeah. needs change over time. Especially when you're dealing with investment businesses that invest for long term, which property is probably a very long term kind of investment, you're going to have that happen. And so it makes sense to understand, right, if there's a disagreement, what is the resolution process for this? Which yeah, is absolutely vital, isn't it? And, and, and no one wants to think about these things when they go into yeah. something because they all get on work. It's a bit like, I don't know, a prenup. <laughs> yeah, even, I mean, there's all sorts of bits and pieces, you know, like lasting powers of attorney and wills, you know, these things are boring. You don't like to think... And your pension passes down to the next of kin when someone dies. What happens actually if, I don't know, you don't get on with your business partner's wife and uh, or vice versa and your business partner's husband and she's sick and suddenly the husband gets it and you clash heads, but he still, still owns part of that sass and you might have to get things signed off if you want to... I don't know, sell a building, for example. Yeah, you've got every single permutation of that. I mean, what if you've got you you've got what if you've got business partners and then both business partners get divorced? And yep. then suddenly so and then the judge decides that they're going to give 50-50 to the spouses. And then what if those spouses remarry? And then you've got these kind of external people, and you know, you've suddenly got where you started with two, you've got six people involved potentially. It doesn't keep me awake at night, far from it. All I'm saying is that people don't give enough consideration to this sort of stuff because it's very easy to get into these things and not easy to get out. And I did come across a situation where there was a particular SaaS provider that had a, a purported small fund solution. And they were just like putting people with 15 grand and 20 grand into a SaaS, putting 11 of them together so that they could have loan backs and go into loan notes with developers that, you know, are no longer solvent. And uh, and I just think to myself, you know, this is horrific. Yeah. Absolutely no, horrific. It's rife. I talk about things like being a marketer's dream, but it's kind of like you want to believe what you want to believe and you'll take that context to the next level when you see, I don't know, people often, they want to look at what's the, I don't know, golden ticket for something and they won't consider the negatives really. And there's a lot of people out there that I don't want to say cut corners, but want the easy option. If something is I don't know, too good to be true, it often is, and especially in kind of the investment. There's a lot of people out there that like to put trustee or SaaS trustee on their social media headline. They don't realise it actually makes them a target. Wearing that badge, it makes them a target for people selling spanky investments. So, yeah, it's not all rosy. No, difficult job. So, James, can you run through some of the vehicles, I guess, that are less well-known with private investors relating to property and some of their benefits. We've already talked about kind of SAS and, and SIP pensions, and we've talked about GDCVs, which are really, really interesting, and I'm, I'm sure lots of people are going to be super interested in those. Some of the typical other ones that kind of come to mind for me are REITs, trusts. Is there anything else, or including those, that you feel we should kind of do a quick whistle-stop tour of in terms of benefits? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with all of the usual things that we discussed before about liquidity and diversification being good things. But yeah, there's, there are a few different types of structures and opportunities out there. I mean, firstly, just before we delve into those, with SIPs and SASs, you've got four ways of getting into property generally the way I see it. 
you've either got lending, you can lend money to a property deal, you can buy shares in an unlisted business, you've got GDCVs, and you've got direct property purchase. So if you park those to one side, I guess then you've got things that, let's call them pooled investments. I don't want to call them collective investment schemes because that's got an FCA connotation to it. But you mentioned trusts. So, you know, trusts can be small private arrangements. You can get, I don't know, 10, 15 investors that want to club together. You know, what can I see out of my window? An Aldi. Suddenly there's someone wanting to sell an Aldi. Supermarket REITs had enough of it, want, you know, wants to get, get rid of it. And they club together and, and they just effectively create this trust, independent trustee, and they go and buy the Aldi. They'll set it up as a bear trust, so the income just flows straight through. And so the pension scheme receives the rent gross. There's no tax leakage. Wonderful. Really quick and easy to set up. Not a collective investment scheme. Tax transparent. I don't know why we don't see more of them, but those are perfectly valid structures. Another one that is quite common, and I guess I think it's probably the most widely recognized fund structure in the world, and that's a limited partnership. LPs are great. They vary slightly from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In some jurisdictions, they're incorporated. In some, they're not. They're not here. But again, they're great tax transparent vehicles for forming quickly. They can be constitution of them can be made very very flexible. So uh, LPs are a useful one. Real estate investment trusts. I guess they've become somewhat democratized in the last year. Now, the absolute requirement to list them has been removed. There's further modifications slated for this year where they no longer need to hold three properties at outset. It can hold one property as long as it's a commercial property valued at 20 million or more. What else? There's so many things. In the last year, there's been the introduction of the quack regime qualifying asset holding companies and you know i'm not fully aware of their application yet but they are another kind of light on regulation transparent on tax type structure that's going to be very useful for things like pensions that qualify as institutional yeah. shareholders so just really interesting stuff there just on that last bit that you mentioned about pensions essentially are institutional shareholders with the changes that happened i think it was april april of last year there were some tax changes or changes to the rules and regulations around reits real estate investment trusts is it now possible again we might talk about theory and reality here to have a your own private pension whether that's sip or sas be the institutional investor to your own reit so that then you get the tax advantages essentially of a REIT and then also of a pension as well. Does Would that in theory work? Because I know up until probably last year, it didn't make financial sense to set up a REIT unless the assets under management were considerable. I'm talking kind of probably about 150 million worth of assets there. Have there been major changes to that? And am I... Is my kind of theory correct or, or not? I think that having looked at and worked with REITs for years in one way, shape or form, how everyone gets to that number of what they think is financially viable for a REIT, everyone's got their own methodology. So, you know, Palamine, who has, he did quite a lot of work on setting up his own REIT, he got the number to 18 million. He just felt it needed to be 18 million. But I guess the, the cost of setting up a REIT historically, the biggest cost was listing. So you kind of need you need your tax advisors, you've got all of your lawyers and you've and you've got the listing itself. And that's a laborious process. You know, it's months and months and months of work, paying out an awful lot in legal bills and not feeling like you're getting anywhere. 
And whether it costs 200,000 or, or half a million quid, depending on which exchange you wanted to put it on, and whether you wanted Magic Circle lawyers working on it or not, billing in six minute increments. So that was historically the barrier. But when the REIT legislation was introduced in the Finance Act 2006, it was very quickly redrafted. And the next iteration was in the Corporation Taxes Act 2010. And what came in at that point was basically a mass modification of the legislation that made it much more attractive and easier to enter the regime then. So while the concept of a private REIT didn't come in April last year, it actually came in in 2012. And so at that point in time, you could have a private REIT. It still had to be listed, but it didn't necessarily have to be traded. You could have one shareholder. We've been able to do that for 10 years, but there was still this requirement to list. What's come in in April last year is where 70% or more of the shareholders fall into the category of being institutional. There's no longer a requirement to list company, which is great. But park that to one side because the pensions regime imposes its own requirements on the REIT that the pension invests in. So you've got issues over diversity of ownership and other compliance things to tick. So I guess if, if you think about the basket of opportunity for being a REIT, it's probably that big. No one will be watching this, but, you know, so if you've got, if you've got, let's say you've got a bucket of opportunity that's 10 gallon that's provided by the REIT legislation, once yep. it's been squeezed by the pensions legislation, your opportunity might be only five gallon. But yeah, there is opportunity for pension schemes to invest into REITs and to have a degree of control, but it's probably beyond the scope of this conversation to to, to outline how. Yeah, okay. Now, I just thought it was really interesting because obviously REITs have very great tax benefits as well in terms of kind of the distribution of income. And I just thought if you can mm. distribute all that income in a very tax efficient way into your own pension and then kind of almost it's essentially a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Of the Then you're able to draw out that income and then it could even go back into the REIT. So yeah, I, I just thought it was quite an interesting kind of concept. But again, as we've discussed, theory and reality can, uh, can sometimes be different. You made a very good point about the pensions, kind of how they would see it in terms of investment diversification, et cetera. Yeah, the, the one does impact the other. I mean, the thing is, it's sort of written into the DNA of our business that we don't say anything is impossible. And the answer, the answer is a no, it's how, but it's a lot of work. Yeah. So I guess what we're saying is now because we can have private, in theory, set up a private REIT, in theory, doesn't need to be listed now. Is that correct? Since last year and so it's just a question of the cost of that has definitely come down because of the not to list so it means that it could potentially be an option for people who have grown portfolios and are looking for maybe different ways to get liquidity i guess yeah well that's the thing i mean a reit people get when i'm describing to people and talking about them they get really hung up on what it is well it isn't a thing it's just a company but in the UK, REIT is a tax regime. It means that if a company qualifies to be a REIT, it's got an exemption from paying corporation tax on its rental profits. That's it. Yeah. It's just a company. It's got requirements to enter the regime and stay in it, but that's all it is. It's just a company that doesn't pay tax legally. Brilliant. So I guess we're coming close to time at the moment, but one last question I've got, and you've kind of touched on this at the moment about there's a lot of promotion of, of different products out there at the moment, especially when it comes to a lot of these pensions and properties. What are some of the main things that you think people need to be wary of when looking at setting up a pension vehicle for property? What are the common mistakes that you see? Well, we've already covered cost erosion. We don't have to re revisit that one. Whether people need to get the right vehicle 
again, people end up kind of down the SaaS route when in reality there's, there's very little that a SIP can't do. Finding the SIP provider to do it is a different matter. So cost erosion, the right structure to be in. They don't want to be too one-eyed on the loan back thing. That can be a danger because people have got the risk of trying to deploy money quickly just because it's sat in cash. Yeah, yeah I would say those are the key things they need to be wary of. And they don't have, people don't have to, if they go into a self-administered arrangement, they don't have to make their decisions on their own. They can use those vehicles, but they can hire any kind of advisor that they want to to assist them in making their decisions, even if that is a chartered surveyor helping them appraise whether a commercial property is a good option and, and whether they can find them a decent tenant. Yeah. And I thought what you said earlier about kind of how you looked at different costs of various trustees, looking at the cost of all, all the different amounts of costs that go into some of these SASs and comparing them against each other. Because I, I know from kind of my experience, you get some that give you a flat fee and it might look quite high, but it might encompass all these yeah. other fees that come along anytime you want to make a transaction and things like that. Yeah. You might get other ones that they've got the kind of their cost list and it might be a very low fee, but then there's all these add-ons. So I guess it, a lot of it might come down to how much activity you think it's going to be doing, not just the value and things like that. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on there. And that's a point that I made, I think, when I wrote an article a couple of years back is that, yeah, you get some maniacs in there quoting a headline rate of £500 a year, but then it's death by a thousand fees. You know, they've got a 16 page fee schedule and, you know, you ring up for a valuation other than your annual valuation is 25 quid or, you yeah. know, you want a bank account that's not one of their preferred providers. And guess what? It's a couple hundred quid to open that. And I mean, you know, I heard a terrible example actually of someone who'd put money on a well-known crowdfunding platform in the property space and their provider had charged them, I think, 300 quid to set the loan up. And then they were charging £300 to maintain that loan for the year. It's a 12-month loan. They get to month 11. The developer says, oh, got a bit of a problem. Uh, It's going to take us 14 months to pay you back. Can we just pay you more interest? Are you okay? Yeah, fine. Absolutely. The thing rolled over for another couple of months. They got charged another 300 quid a year. Now, that 900 quid that they'd been charging total in relation to that loan meant that they earned less than the SaaS provider did. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so again that's i guess that's the cost of freedom absolutely um james that's been really really helpful getting certainly me to understand a lot more about kind of pension wrappers and different other structures certain the listeners will feel the same if anyone wants to get in touch with you what's the best way to contact you and where can they learn more about you I'm easy enough to find. I mean, my, my preferred platform is LinkedIn, but I'm on Facebook. I'm not too difficult to find James Hadley Pensions. Okay, brilliant. And we'll make sure we put a link to your LinkedIn profile and also the website as well on the show notes. So thanks again, James. It's been great to have you on. Thanks, Rob. Delighted. Delighted.